welcome to another episode of Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess. Happy holidays. (laughs) Happy holidays. Happy holidays, Broads. Broads, happy holidays. Happy... Uh, you're trying yeah, to think I'm of like, all the holidays. Most of them. Well, I think happy Kwanzaa. Happy Kwanzaa. Technically, uh, I think this Hanukkah. is the second day of Hanukkah. Merry Christmas in a couple days, and we wanted to make sure on the uh, the week that we're celebrating all these different holidays that we can provide you a episode filled with merriment. And this is not we're dropping this. I believe it's a Monday because we want to have something that you guys can listen to while you're maybe driving to family. Or sitting by the fire and listening Roasting to... Roasting chestnuts, yeah. as one does. As one does. Never have in my life. Or but. as you're driving to your retail job that. on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. I was doing that a couple of years ago Look on a that Christmas. Shit. That was hard. Dude, that sucks. I was watching through the window, like crying, watching the people like drink their <laughs> hot happy chocolate. families. <laughs> yeah, just like, I don't have anybody. What's I mean, I worse, Christmas Eve or Black Friday? Oh, Black Friday would make me used to make me angry, uh-huh. and Christmas Eve Makes made me sad, very sad, <laughs> very low. <laughs> it was an high point for me. Well, if you're doing that, we we yeah. feel you seriously. We get you. We see you. But we wanted to add a little bit of cheer to your life, so we wanted to do a holiday episode. Wait, first of all, did you end up decorating? I mean, I will have by the time that this episode comes I- out decorated i saw and it looks so nice all of a sudden i was feeling kind of down and i was like i don't have any friends in long beach i hate my life and then i was like i'm gonna go get a christmas tree and i'm gonna go to home depot and get lights and and it looks so nice (sighs) my whole world has changed now Mm -hmm. anyway so anyways let's get into it last year we dropped a christmas episode and we talked all about santa we yes, talked all about the like Santa our debate. old the Santa debate, our old Santa stories. We had some broads, I believe, like with some incredibly emails. traumatic stories. Super traumatic. Remember that kid who was like fourteen and like still thought that Santa was real. Yeah, and his parents or her parents were telling her like, "No, he's real. He's real." Even oh, when she was like begging to know. Horrible. Anyways. <laughs> We you can go we- back and listen to that if you'd like to. It's like in one of our first 10 episodes. So. Um, but we figured we'd change the direction. And so we thought we'd go nativity direction this year. Yeah. And and then, yes. And we needed a special guest because God knows we needed it. And I've been also wanting to have him on the podcast for quite some time. Oh, yeah. Why don't you begin this intro on the show? Well, I discovered this person by listening to um, Rob Bell's podcast, who we've had on this show before. And um, the first time I heard him, I started to all of a sudden dive dive bomb into YouTube videos and read a book and became a huge fan of you. So... Peter Rollins. Oh, wow. I've died bombed you. in the past 24 hours and have become a huge fan. Wow. Peter, no. do you like Peter Rollins or Pete better? Uh, Dr. No, Pete. Oh. Pete. <laughs> You're like neither no. girlfriend. Dr. Rollins, Dr. Rollins please. please. Let's keep this formal. I'm very nervous because uh, why was I nervous? When you, oh, you said about Christmas cheer and people know me as kind of, I sell nihilism for money and alcohol. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to be a lot more cheery. <laughs> like, my, my work is quite dark. Get jolly. Gonna get okay. Oh no! Listen, my work is about coming to terms with death and suffering and <laughs> the ultimate cool death of the universe. So happy Christmas! Or <laughs> which actually, we'll definitely get into this. But I think there's 
in a way, mm-hmm. a jolly, joyful spin on yes. that. Yes, Agreed. there is. That's Agreed. why I do it. If you run away from the suffering, you just end up in it even more. Funnily enough, the way out of darkness is into it. That's why if Ooh. you go to a psychoanalyst and you're like, listen, there's so much horrible stuff and there's a big trap door beside me and there's these tentacles coming out and these monsters and I just want you to close the trap door, the analyst will actually push you in. But the reason why they push you in is because actually that's the way to get out. So, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Sadly, the way out of darkness is to face it. Hmm. Uh, but there you go. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. We're already listen, starting jolly. We talk about the Enneagram on this show quite a yeah. bit and I'm a four. So I'm like the darker, the more happy I am. Yes. Painted so black. Yeah. Do you know what your Enneagram number is? I don't, you know. I, I, I'm it's okay. The, I'm not. I is that right? I don't really get it. Still, yeah. even though we had an expert on, I'm deeply involved. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people who have got real insight into themselves mm-hmm. through the Enneagram. I was also nervous about because I thought this was not going to be about the Enneagram, but potentially about The Bachelor. So I've been doing <laughs> yeah. a lot of research. If that's what we're going to be talking about. I've watched every season in preparation for this. He's really been caught up. Yeah. It's been six weeks of just, you yeah. know, looping on your TV, you know. Yeah, I've got to tell people who are listening, but I gave, there's one thing I know about yes. uh, The Bachelor and you didn't, you didn't know what I, I was talking know. about. So I have a friend, a guy I met in Nashville called Brady Toops. And uh, we hang out and when he's in L.A., we hang out. And he, I didn't find out until I hung out with him a few times, but he was an early, was an early contestant on he The actually, Bachelor. It wasn't actually that long no. ago, relatively speaking. If the broads listening watched Caitlin Bristow and Britt's season from the top, well, it was Caitlin's season, Caitlin's but season it started off yeah. with a competition kind of, which was such an awkward thing between her and Britt and Brady took off after Brit when they yeah. sent her home. Yeah, so basically they didn't get enough votes for Brit. And then Brady was like, I'm not staying on Caitlyn's season and followed Britt. And he followed Britt. So I didn't tell you his name and we're trying to guess. We but, were, as soon, <laughs> but as soon as I showed you a picture, you were like, you knew it all. I knew. Suddenly I knew. it, it just, all it just came, came out. <laughs> it just came flooding back. But yeah, no, poor Pete. We're like, yeah, we're uh, we're just a full Bachelor podcast. We're He's actually like, going to be doing a recap. Why did you invite me on? We wanted to get your philosophical take on The Bachelor. On the bachelor actually, yeah. that could be incredibly That could be really fun, but I'd have to watch a couple. Yeah. yeah. By the way, spoiler, I think it's not a spoiler. Now, but they never they never ended up sticking together. No. Yeah, no, unfortunately. unfortunately, that happens yeah. a, a fair amount of the time. Who would have thought? Yeah, <laughs> who would have thought that it's not the best stories. way to get a partner? Who there are thought? some beautiful love stories you know that have come though? from it. I always say, you know, you can meet your partner at the grocery store at a funeral. Why not meet them on TV? Yes, right? exactly, yeah. absolutely. And you're bonded then, together for life. Yeah. Didn't work for me, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, not bitter about it. No, were you on it? Were you on it? Oh, yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. What? No, that's why we started doing this. <gasps> oh, <laughs> really? oh, my goodness. That's crazy. I'm starstruck. Starstruck. <laughs> that's incredible. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So what happened? I mean, everyone knows, so I shouldn't get into it, but what happened? Well, I'll give a very brief thing. So I, I have to toot my own horn. I was the first girl to ever have a pixie cut on the, sh- on the show wow. in 22 seasons. I was no the first girl to ever have hair above her shoulders. Nor since. Wow. No short hair. Yeah. She was the Which first. Which is just... First and last? Insane, yeah. My apparently. goodness. Wow. And uh, I was on this guy, Ari season. Basically what happened was um, I got fifth place and I got sent home in Italy. And then he picked a girl, got engaged to her. Then... 
two or three months later, he dumped her on camera and got with the second, the runner-up. Uh-huh. Reunited with the runner-up, got engaged to her, and actually they're now married and have a kid. Wow. So wow. it's kind of funny because they're one of the success stories. Right. Even though yeah. A lot of the success stories are the ones that end up breaking up with the original one and then going with going with the their one heart. they didn't choose. Yeah. Quite I mean, interesting. Yeah. In psychoanalysis, there's an interesting thing where you have to have obstacles. So the oh. person that you, you get is not necessarily the one you want. You want the person who you can't get. Uh, the term making love actually used to be about this. Two people don't make love. You have a third person who makes love. And that's a chauffeur, or a chauffeur, not a chauffeur, a chaperone. Oh. A chauffeur drives your car. A chaperone gets in the middle of two people. And, and sp- prevents a prevents barrier a, from them getting together. Exactly, because you think that the chaperone is there to stop you from doing anything untoward, uh-huh. but actually they're there to start getting you to fantasize about what you could do if only they weren't there to they're stop creating it. creating tension. So they were making love. They were creating desire. Wow. So in, in terms of like dating apps and stuff, it, it's often when you talked about uh, the things that work, you realize sometimes it's the person I didn't choose, but then I bumped into them at an event or something has to get in the way to generate desire. So, oh, uh, that's yeah. fascinating. That fascinating. Okay, so that actually makes sense. Why? Or maybe the people on the show who have like love triangles and oh, then yeah. they, they lose the person temporarily and then get them back and all love that kind triangles of stuff. are key like there's certain, <laughs> so, there's certain people who this is very typical for a guy often guys can only desire what they don't have so they they're with somebody and then they start desiring someone else and often women although it, it's it's not completely gendered but it's just more typical often desire what's about to be taken away from them mm. so in a love triangle you get a couple maybe there's no desire and then the guy starts to go out with have an affair with somebody and then it's found out and you think they're going to split up because the woman's really pissed off the man says well it's in a relationship's dead but then what happens is a week later they're back together again there's desire in the relationship they hate each other but they're like they can't keep their hands off each other and it's partly because uh, the man was desiring this woman because she was impossible. As soon as the obstacle was taken away, he's like, I don't want to go out with her. She's crazy. Uh, <laughs> and the woman, as soon as her partner's starting to be under threat to being taken away, she starts to go, oh, actually, you know, maybe I want I want him. I'm going to. And so love triangles are this very dysfunctional way for people to keep desire so alive. So you're saying our listeners, if they're having issues, should make their partner jealous in order to bring, <laughs> have an affair in order That's to bring right. things back together. That's right. Got it. I love this. I love this takeaway. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Actually, yeah. it's kind of funny because my, my boyfriend yesterday told me he had this dream and he was like, I had a great dream last night. We were like at this a camp or something and um but we had never gotten together and you weren't into me and his whole dream uh, was about yeah. him trying to catch mm-hmm. me alone that's mm-hmm. very good that's very interesting and i was like yeah. did we did you end up like hooking up with me and he was like no you were you always had something to do and we're always tired and like whatever and i never i just i never got to have my moment with you and he like thought that dream was great that's interesting because dreams are the site of truth. The, the funny thing is our waking life is really our dream life. That's the fake life. That's where we pretend we're all together and everything's fine. But and sometimes we have to wake up uh, in order to dream. Uh, you have a nightmare that's so close to your truth that you have to wake up in order to distance yourself from your truth. Mm. So in your dreams, that's why 
in, in analysis, you listen to your dreams because your dreams tell you deep truth mm. that you can't see in your waking life because mm. your waking life is your Facebook profile. It's your carefully curated, A I'm fine presentation. But in your dreams and your nightmares, you encounter your desires and fears and all of that. So in a, in a way, actually, a love triangle isn't the problem. It's the solution to a problem. Just like alcoholism isn't the problem, it's the solution to a problem, mm -hmm. but it's a solution that creates its own problems. Mm. So when you see someone in a love triangle, think about what is the problem that that is trying to solve? And it's the problem of desire. Mm -hmm. It's a problem mm -hmm. of how to desire mm -hmm. the other. Uh, in fact, some people are jealous, not because they love. Uh, they love because they're jealous, i.e., the only way they can keep their love alive is to be jealous. So, you know, so these are, but this is not what we're here to talk about, <laughs> but, but desire is a fascinating subject. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> we definitely need to do a bachelor analysis episode with you. Oh, real. <laughs> but then I'm also wondering like, so what are the healthy alternatives to solve uh, these problems versus? Yeah. And, but this is interesting because one of the healthy ways potentially is how do you create barriers within your relationship? How do you create oh, deadlocks, impossibilities and antagonisms within a couple to keep passion alive yes. without going and cheating on your spouse et exactly because if you don't create an internal deadlock you'll create an external deadlock um and and then that causes problems you see it all the time and people who if they can't you know basically you want this perfect relationship because there's a fantasy of we can complete each other like, you know, those little necklaces where they're like two hearts split right. and you kind yeah. of connect, connect. I'm trying to make one where it's, it's a heart split into two, but they don't fit together. So you can, because that's the better thing is like, we want to complete each other, but that's actually death. It's mm. so boring. It gets rid of the contradictions of life. Mm. So then what you find is a person will, in order to create, in order to bring antagonism back, they'll do stuff externally. So the, the the trick is how do you create struggle within your relationship? So maybe like a healthy a healthy alternative would be like having hobbies and a career and friends and all these sort of things that like you have things to do and yeah. you don't have time to spend with this person all the time. Yes, mm -hmm. and even and even like gameplay, even kind of like uh, you know go away for a month and say you're not coming with me or create create obstacles <laughs> within the relationship. <laughs> Europe for a month. Bye. I swear to God, it's going to help our relationship. Yeah. <laughs> this is for you, really. This is for you. I'm being very selfless. Wait, but I'm, if I'm thinking about bachelor stuff, this is reminding me of Dean and Kaylin. Remember how I said they're going to last? Yeah. This is my prediction. Mm -hmm. It's this couple that was on The Bachelor, and he is just very much like this traveler who never really wanted to commit. And she's kind of like, I would say she's like a romantic who like wants him, but it seems like he's always sort of unavailable and they ended up getting together. And I said on past uh, episodes, I'm like, I think they're going to stay together the longest out of everyone on this season yeah. because there's like this yeah. dynamic of like always being one step away from each other yeah. in a way. That's right. Have you ever seen the Bridges of Madison County or yes. read the book? Yeah, oh. uh, it's beautiful. And it, it's a beautiful um, description of this because the woman is she's a bored housewife with a, a nice but kind of boring husband and then this really cool photographer as you know comes into town Clint Eastwood uh -oh. and mm -hmm. he is yeah yeah trouble <laughs> right and you know she you know he he's like this impossibility that but represents an escape from middle America escape from her family escape from everything 
But she's caught in a she's caught in an impossible scenario. Does she stay with the boring relationship, or does she go off with the exciting guy, which we all knew would be a disaster mm-hmm. because uh, they would never work out. He's been single all his life. He's just too crazy. And so the the movie actually. You know, it, 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 it ends in a romantic way, but not with an expression of the truth. And the romantic thing is that she stays with her husband, but always fantasizes mm. about him. And eventually they're buried together or their ashes are scattered at the bridges of Madison County. So it's very beautiful. Wow. But, but it captures the dilemma that many of us face and desire, which is you feel this, this pull between the boring and safe and the adventurous and, uh, you know, exciting and either way you feel you're going to make a mistake so you know you go away with the exciting it's going to be a disaster you stay with the boring you're going to be living dead and the question is how do you bring those two things into your relationship in a way in which it is exciting and dangerous and also stable and enriching well (laughs) i'm gonna have to get at the bottom of that one for the rest of my life (laughs) figuring that one out okay so We've already talked about The Bachelor and Desire, and we're about to hear more about Pete and philosophy and the nativity and the history of Christmas. But speaking of Christmas, it's in a few days. And what that means for me personally is that I will be eating quite a bit of chocolate. It's what I do for myself during the holidays. And what that also means is that my skin will be angry with me. I know I will inevitably break out, but I am taking the mother of all pimple treatments down to my mother's house for the celebration in preparation. It's meltdown by bloom. You broads know that Becca and I are wild for meltdown. Most acne medications leave your skin dry and irritated. Meltdown by bloom is so different. It's an all natural proprietary blend of essential oils that leaves you with clear glowy skin while minimizing blemishes and clearing up redness. And listen to me, meltdown will reduce the size and redness of pimples overnight at least for me personally, and they completely disappear within three to four days. I have never had any sort of spot treatment that works as quickly and effectively as Meltdown. It's legitimately crazy. And Becca taught me to mix it in with my foundation or moisturizer because it dries clear and smooth. It's amazing. Taking care of business all while still having your makeup or moisturizer on. Thank you, Meltdown. It's also vegan and cruelty-free. It's pregnancy safe. And you can check out Bloom for other safe, sustainable self-care products, including face wash, toner, deodorant, and organic pads and tampons. They truly are an incredible company. And right now, our listeners will get 25% off and free shipping when you go to bloom.com slash chatty. That's bloom.com slash chatty for 25% off Meltdown Spot Treatment by Bloom. If you don't love it, return it for a full refund, no questions asked. That's B-L-U-M-E dot com slash chatty. Okay, anyway, let's okay. get into the, anyway, let's that get was, into that it. That's actually I know fascinating. That's very fascinating. Well, I realized that we really didn't even give you an introduction to oh, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In, we just told you we're fans. And then so can you give us a little blurb about who you are, what you do, oh, how you right. got started doing it, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm always rubbish at this. And in LA or anywhere you ask, what do you do? You're like, what do I do? <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah, it's a difficult <laughs> one. So I guess um, uh, I, I do, uh, so I'm trained in philosophy and um, I use philosophy and uh, psychoanalysis and other disciplines to, I suppose a lot of my work is about helping 
people and come to terms with their contradictions, with their symptoms, with their difficulties. Uh, a lot of my work is about unpicking self-destructive behavior. Um, because that's a weird thing about human beings. By the way, you don't see it in animals, right? Animals are great utilitarians. So utilitarianism and philosophy is you try, you act to maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain. And uh, it's an ethical theory that we all do that. But uh, in psychoanalysis, the idea is actually humans are terrible utilitarians. We act in ways that are destructive to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we do things that we know are bad. Like we pursue maybe the increase of money, uh, even though we know we're going to get a heart attack or we're going to climb over our friends. Mm-hmm. or We do all of this crazy stuff. Uh, why is it we go out with people who will always hurt us and mm-hmm. never want to go out with the people who won't? Or why is it we always, just when we're about to succeed, we somehow do something to mess it up? Like, uh, you know, uh, say something bad in a party or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so my work is largely about helping people to lead healthier lives individually and communally. Um, is utilitarianism, is that sort of when you, the goal is to create like the best possible outcome? Is that what like that means? Like, for example, like in philosophy, is that when like you're a poor utilitarian if you would choose to save your child in front of a moving train versus a hundred people? Is that like being a bad utilitarian? Like what's what's utilitarianism? Yeah. It, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like that, but at a deeper level, utilitarians like Bentham or Mill are kind of saying that we, we actually always are utilitarians. There's no way out of it. Everyone is always acting towards their best interest. And then the question is, sometimes we don't because of our education or because of misinformation. But a utilitarian says that basically we're all trying to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. Now, I I think the the best critique of that is actually in, in people like Freud, who kind of give this alternative explanation that says, well, no, we're... We, uh, we actually aren't good utilitarians. But the, so the theory is almost, it's not even that you can be a bad utilitarian uh, in the sense of you, you always are maximizing your, even if you steal from a friend, mm. you're doing that because you want to maximize your pleasure. Okay, so when you're mm. talking about being a utilitarian, it's uh, about the self and not the greater good. Yeah, or and some utilitarians then say that, that as long as you educate people better, uh, people, if they act for the greater good, they're acting for themselves okay. as well. So here's an example. Here's a weird example. Um, if there's a if there's a rumor that there's going to be a drought in LA, uh, and so you're going okay, there's going to be a drought. What will I do? Well, I fill my bath with water because um, if I fill my bath with water, then I'll have water to drink for the next month. But then you think to yourself, if everybody fills their bath with water, we're all we're all in trouble because mm-hmm. there's going to be no water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if nobody does then uh, we'll all be maybe okay. There'll be a bit of a drought, but we'll all be okay. But if I fill my bath with water, right, and nobody else does, well, it's fine. And I'll have a bit more water than everybody else. If everybody else is filling their bath with water and I don't, well, I'm in big trouble. So basically what happens is it's always in your best self-interest to fill your bath with water, but that messes up everybody. So a good utilitarian will say, well, if you think about the greater good, and if everybody thinks about the greater good, we shouldn't fill our bathtubs, then everyone will do better. So that's a very bizarre way of saying that a utilitarian might say that if we're all thinking about our self-interest, we're all going to damage everybody. Sure. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's, yeah, but it's mostly a theory of, it's basically evolutionary psychology. It's basically a theory that 
the humans are always wanting the best for themselves and their family and their community. And uh, in psychoanalysis, there's an idea that we often do want the best for ourselves. Actually, we're we self-sabotaging. Yeah. yeah, we self-sabotage. And, and the big question is, why do we do that? Um, but, you know, but but the issue is, yeah, I work with people who who want to live in community where we're healthier and we... Uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, so that's a bit of what I do. I set up intentional communities sometimes and I um, also teach in philosophy. What and does write. that look like, setting up an intentional community? Yeah, so I've set up... That sounds like a commune, like you're yeah. setting up a commune. <laughs> it's a little bit like that, but much more dysfunctional. Although they're usually <laughs> dysfunctional as well. <laughs> yeah. um, I've set up a couple of groups where mostly it's like a crowd more than a community. People mm-hmm. who meet together maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks and engage in what I call transformance art, which is basically, it's like this, right? We all have liturgy in our life, right? Mm -hmm. Liturgy is ritual. And uh, whether if you go to the pub every week, that's a liturgy. If you meet for coffee with your friends every week or you play poker once a month, Mm -hmm. these are kind of liturgies of life. So we all, we are liturgical creatures. Um, But there's, there's types of liturgy which help you escape from your suffering. So you've gone through a breakup, say, and so you go to a nightclub and you dance and you drink and you hang out with friends. That's a type of liturgy that's helping you try to avoid your suffering. It's a solution to a problem. The only issue is it doesn't really work because the next day your suffering comes back. Um, A different type of liturgy would be like an Irish pub. Same stuff, alcohol, friends and music. But you go to an Irish pub and you don't drink to get drunk to forget about your life. You have a couple of drinks to talk about your life. And the music's not so loud that you can't talk with your friends mm-hmm. in an intelligent way. You know, in nightclubs, you can only shout the most basic stuff. Sure. But in a, in a proper bar, you can actually talk. And then the music, pop music, is designed to help you forget about your suffering. Everything's great. But in Irish a pub, you'll have some sad person talking about how his one true beloved died of consumption and he'll <laughs> never love again, right? Um, and what the difference between these two liturgical events is one is helping you talk about your suffering, to put it into artistic form, so you're listening to someone sing about difficulties, and one is trying to help you avoid it. So the communities that I try to set up are more like the latter, more like the Irish pub. Interesting. It's a use of various techniques, technologies of the self to help us confront the darkness, not so that we despair, but actually so that we can move beyond despair and enjoy the depth and density of life. Um, there was actually Soren Kierkegaard, he once said, uh, what is an artist? What is a poet? And he oh, said, I just heard you quote this this morning oh, on that, that right? episode uh, I and I immediately looked up the quote <laughs> and I have a screenshot of it on my phone uh, right now because I was like, this is so good. Oh, Sorry, it's such continue. a beautiful quote. I know it's, it's beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah, it's in his diaries. He says, what is a poet? Or uh, maybe an either or. But a, a poet is someone who screams and cries in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. And so when we say to the poet, sing to us again, we are saying, may new disasters befall you. And uh, it's a beautiful quote, but it's like, it's, that's what a great artist does is mm. they're just crying out. Yeah. But, and it says, it says something at the end. He says something to the effect of, uh, because we cannot stand the, the crying out, but like this, but the music is so beautiful. Yes. Yes. That's right. So we can, he says, he makes a distinction you might've seen between a music lover who can appreciate the music, but they keep themselves at a distance from the emotion of it. 
So they become an expert in music and they can talk about how great or not great the music is. And then he talks about the music lover who might not know anything about music, but who experiences the emotional freight that's within it. And it's actually similar to this idea of Christmas and nativity, funnily enough, is, you know, someone could be an expert in, say, the meaning of Christmas, but not experience the emotional freight of it. Mm. And yet someone else who might not know anything about Christmas or Christianity or religion, but they might see in this image of, of, this, of God as a helpless child something profoundly true. They, they, they don't even know why, but there's just something powerful about it. Mm. Um, and actually, in, in originally... It was a very powerful symbol because Caesar was born of a virgin. Caesar was a god. But Caesar had a kingdom that was in, in a mansion. And Caesar was about power and authority. So whenever the original Christians talked about the son of God, born of a virgin, who didn't have a mansion but a manger, who, who didn't reign in power but in powerlessness, who didn't look after the most powerful but looked after the weakest... This was, a, this was a very profound uh, uh, w- description of what something. What is this myth of Caesar you talk? I don't, I'm not familiar with this. Oh, yeah. So it was very common, like, of, of virgin births and gods walking among us and these ideas. Um, and so, you know, at the time of Jesus, it was, uh, which Caesar was it? Was it Caesar Augustus, who was claimed to be born of a virgin mm-hmm. and to be son of God? So whenever this called him literally son of God, right? Yeah. That was the term. That was the term. So whenever this new group shows up and says, this is this, this child was born of a virgin and is the son of God. It's a political claim. It's Mm. a, it's not about, uh, it's something very powerful, um, that very existential. So, so kings were born of virgins, like mythically speaking throughout. Yeah. Why, why? What's the symbolism behind that of being born of a virgin? Just that it has to be some sort of divine conception? Like why is, what, what's the use of that trope yeah. for? I mean, I guess it's because they, like a lot of power and uh, they want to legitimate themselves via God. So to be born of God, you know, like a, a basically kind of an amalgamation of a, of a woman and of God is kind of a way to try to, in an ideological way, legitimate your power and authority. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it, that's religion at its worst, really, is when religion is used to justify uh, injustice and power. Abusive power. Abusive yeah. power. And uh, that's the way it's used a lot. Um, but then this alternative reading... Uh, is very interesting then. It's kind of like religion as a, as a critique of that use of power. So for mm. Caesar Augustus, I think that really these claims that to be the son of God is simply a way of trying to ideologically justify their regime. Mm. Right, and it was that way with like most Caesars and I, I believe like Alexander the Great, there was a, he was a, like, believed to be like, maybe not maybe not a virgin birth, but from a God, like out of a river, there was all these like main characters in ancient history were associated with godlike yeah. births, correct? So the idea of the son of God, Jesus, coming from where he came from was this like radical idea for the the um, ancient Jewish listener at the time. Yeah, That's interesting because the only immaculate conception that I'm familiar with now. And I think most people are, are with the birth of Jesus. So like when we talk about it, it sort of seems like this, um, 
I don't know. I think since we're maybe distanced from that ancient tradition of recognizing the symbolism of being born of a virgin, it sort of seems like this weird, irrelevant, like not true fact. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Versus when you put it in that context, it's like, oh, it's to show the this this powerful, like you're saying, symbolism of like divinity brought to man, to a baby in this helpless, like sort of desperate situation. Uh. That's it. And th this is a different way of reading things. Oh, and the Immaculate Conception, weirdly, is slightly different from the virgin birth, but that's oh. irrelevant. Well, yeah, the Immaculate Conception is a very uh, scholastic Catholic doctrine about, I think, the the purity of Mary. Oh. So, but that's a, oh, okay. a, a oh, by okay. the by, just as an interest, just in case someone types, oh, they're different on your comment section. Sure. We've covered it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, like a lot of times people read, say, a text like the Bible and they're looking at it in terms of, what's literally true or not. And the question of what meaning it has kind of gets lost. So for example, like it's you know, like a dream is a good example. Uh, if you come to me with a dream and you say, oh, listen, I was getting up for work and I had an Uber outside to pick me up and then the Uber started to drive off and I was running after the Uber, um, but I couldn't catch it. Uh, I don't ask you whether, oh, did you see an Uber that day? Uh, you know, is that something that's <laughs> happened to you before, right? Yeah. Dreams are made up of literal historical things and things you've seen on TV and all of that. But what I do is I take the dream absolutely literally. So I'm a literalist about the dream. And I ask, what does it mean? And I ask you, you know, is it, do you not want to go to work? Uh, do you want to leave? Do you want to run away? Um, I start to associate with what the dream means. So in a way, I take the dream absolutely literally. The, the issue for me with some forms of confessional Christianity is it doesn't go that deep. Uh, it was one mystic once said, like, I don't, it doesn't matter if, uh, you know, Jesus rode from the dead literally a hundred times, if he didn't rise from the dead in my being. So in other words, if there was someone rises from the dead and it's on TV, a Netflix documentary, you might, you might watch it, but you might just watch a Marvel movie instead. Right. It's not that interesting. <laughs> um, but, but if it means something about new life, if it means something, uh, uh, if it has freight of meaning, then it becomes something even more significant. Like a flag is just a piece of cloth. But actually, for some people, it means a lot more. It means your country. It means, you know, all of these other things. So for me, re whether it's reading the biblical text or reading a dream or, or whatever it is, is I'm trying to ask, what is the meaning that mm. is being encapsulated in what I'm reading? I think your example, actually, of the, the movies is a good example because unless you're an asshole, if you're unpacking like Lord of the Rings or a Marvel movie yeah. or something in terms of like, can this actually happen? Yes. <laughs> right. You know, in terms of gravity and all that, it's like you're missing the point. Yeah. Like that's not... That's the worst type of person to yeah. sit with at a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And there's yeah. lots of jokes this about them. Happen. I love it. Like I saw a Simpsons joke and it's always this the nerd who says, you know, in episode three, you know, 13 <laughs> minutes in. And it's like, because and the joke is, of course, is like that person person is not capturing the meaning of the episode. Mm -hmm. their, their, their precision is like what Kierkegaard said about the critic. The critic can speak about every moment of the music, but the music lover captures the meaning of the entire piece. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so if we're unpacking things in terms of like, in a literal sense, maybe when we're looking at this story of the nativity, you're kind of killing it. You're, you're kind of 
extracting and separating the the meaning and the passion and the yeah. poetry that's within it. And there's there's a way in which they join together. This is um the what's called incarnation, as you guys will know. So incarnation is a fascinating thing. Uh, incarnation means the the absolute coincidence of opposites. It means the coming together of two. Uh, of basically the temporal and the eternal, um, this, the the absolute and the subjective. Uh, so the idea of the God-man or whatever. But it's not necessarily a theological term. Um, the Can I use an example to kind of... Yes. Yeah. So the Titanic, right, which is built in Belfast, by the way, not many people know that. I'm from Belfast. Yes. Right? Uh, <laughs> and uh, we didn't drive it. The English drove it. So. Yeah, blame well, it we, on Yeah, we built it. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be driven in icebergs, right? right? Um is, uh, so the Titanic is interesting because it was the sinking of a ship mm-hmm. uh, in 1912. Uh, I think it's a maiden voyage to New York. Now, 14 years before the Titanic sank, there was a short story called The Wreck of the Titan. Uh, it was also called Futility. And it was by a guy called Morgan Robinson. And it was a book that talked about uh, a ship that was basically the same size as the Titanic on its maiden voyage in April, which is when the Titanic was uh, on its maiden voyage, hit an iceberg in the same ocean as the Titanic, having broadly the same amount of lifeboats, broadly a similar amount of people dying, going at basically the same speed, right? So when you read these two side by side, you go, oh my goodness, the wreck of the Titan is like 14 years before the Titanic. So the question is, why did that happen? And just to kind of shorten it down a bit like he was an expert in shipbuilding and this guy who wrote the short story just knew enough about ships you know to work out what could a disaster mm-hmm. could be but also ships had a symbolism at the time they were the spaceships of the day they were the the high point of human creativity and industry they also symbolized class distinction the upper class at the top the lower class at the bottom the middle class in the middle all working together so these ships they captured something of human ingenuity, human technology, uh, uh, romanticism of kind of discovering new lands. All of this was in it. And so he wrote a story. Then 14 years later, a purely contingent event, right? The Titanic, ships sink all the time, planes crash all the time. The question is, why has the Titanic remained with us when other ships haven't? Right. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, because that's weird. Like, there's lots of ships sink, lots of people die. Why is it that the Titanic is something that's still thought about? I remember hearing this quote, too. Apparently, before the Titanic sunk, there was like, it was a saying or something of like, only God could sink That's right. Ship. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's uh-huh. it. And that, that was that's kind of captured in the name futility. Like, there's something about the human uh, hubris. In in the ship is like this is the, you know we it's like the Tower of Babel right, right. this is this is us at a height like pinnacle we could of human do anything right. yeah so there's something about when the ship sank what happened is it became a symbol for two things this a symbol for the epoch right this is 1912 two years before the first world war right this is the end of an era the the ship was almost like a a, sim, a symbol of european society class divisions it was a symbol of human power and industrialism yeah. all of that so it captured so much symbolism that this contingent event became it was incarnated it became uh the meaning it, it articulated the meaning of the age 
And even more than that, because we're still interested in the Titanic, is there something about the Titanic that captured the truth, some deep truth about what it is to be human, mm. which we could unpack. But, but the issue there is that's an incarnation. It's when some gristle of reality that's purely contingent becomes the expression of deep truth of something, deep truth in the moment and deep truth that universally. Um, the Joker is another example. I, by the way, slight spoiler, if you don't want to, if you haven't seen The Joker, maybe fast forward five <laughs> minutes. Right? So fast forward five minutes right now and come back and listen to this afterwards. Um, but Joker was fascinating because mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you've seen it yet. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Unbelievable. So, yeah. I haven't. A quite phenomenal piece of work. Yeah. And the danger they could have done is they could have psychologized the Joker. Um, and uh, there's a whole reason why that's just a bad direction to go. Um, but they didn't psychologize the Joker. What was really interesting is the Joker is this guy who's just a mess and he's dealing with all of this mental health issues and, and in, a, in a difficult place. But it's in the background of Gotham City. And Gotham City is is in, in absolute disarray, suffering, inequality. The whole thing feels like it's going to fall apart, right? It's 1980s Gotham. It feels like there's just all of this uh, injustice and suffering that can't be articulated. And the moment the Joker becomes the Joker is not when he psycho- psychologically, individually becomes this individual. He's just a crazy nihilist out killing people. He's just a mess. It's whenever Gotham City, the people of Gotham City, see in the Joker the articulation of their suffering. So the brilliant thing about the movie is that the Joker becomes the Joker when when Gotham City sees him as the articulation of the suffering. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. It's fa- so it's fascinating. And the funny thing about it is, so he's the incarnation. He he basically makes Gotham City self-aware. It, it's... It, Gotham City is now able to, the people are able to articulate their suffering through the Joker, even though the Joker's not a political figure and it's actually just a guy who's out there killing people. That's another type of incarnation where some contingent event, which is this guy, uh, what was his name? Uh, Arthur, uh, Arthur something. uh, But this guy, Arthur, this contingent event becomes the site in which the city understands itself. Uh, and then finally, just or understands f- its suffering. And it's like, suffering, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and and the funny thing is, uh, is that it's not even the Joker has no insight, but just the belief that the Joker has the insight is enough for the city to become aware of itself. Um, okay, I see how this is all tying in. Yes. I'm getting this. Getting so slow, when yeah. we're talking about like, I mean, if we're going to go back to the nativity and talk about the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus, and talking yeah. about this godlike figure who was born into you know, poverty essentially and born into nothingness and then being elevated and then dying Mm -hmm. again, like a thief and like a beggar. It's, it is sort of this contingent event that allows us to Mm. realize this human experience through this arc of events of this person's life. Absolutely. Because the question is why this figure and nobody else, like there's something about this story that still resonates today with millions of people, something that, that were in which this contingent gristle of reality mm-hmm. becomes the incarnation of eternal truth, which is what incarnation means, the God-man. This is, by the way, also what a symptom is. This is brilliant. So a symptom is an, uh, an event in your body that is contingent 
like a bad back, a headache, you grind your teeth, you get anxious about going out, you don't like to answer your phone, whatever it is. Just described me. Go <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just did the checklist. And it's these events that uh, actually articulate the truth of who you are. Now, when we, we encounter a symptom, we often think that a symptom is a problem, i.e. it's like a cancer you can cut out of your body. That's not me. Right? You burst into tears for no reason in the car when you're listening to some advert. Oh, that's not me. That's weird. That's where you distance yourself. But actually the idea is, no, that contingent explosion is actually more the true. It's the most <laughs> you. That's why it's called a parapraxis because a paramilitary is like a military that's outside the authority of of the government. So it's a paramilitary. Mm-hmm. A parapraxis is a practice that is outside the authority of your consciousness. So it's something you do without realizing it. It's an explosion that you go, that's not me. And an analyst is always looking for your parapraxis or slips of the tongue. It's whenever you're talking about, like whenever a child puts their hand up and says mummy instead of teacher or whatever, you go like, whenever you make a mistake, the mistake is what speaks the truth. And so an analyst isn't listening to what you're saying because what you're saying is your conscious control. They're looking for the little mistakes. So, for example, I recently was going for coffee. My housemate said, let's go for coffee. And he mentioned this place called Coffee Commissary. I think yes. it's coffee, yeah. And I looked it Fantastic. up. It's very good coffee. <laughs> and I looked it up. But the place was 45 minutes away from where we lived. And I'm like, okay, oh, why am I going here? But I drove <laughs> all ridiculous. the way there. It's ridiculous. Like, what is this going on? So I went there. I was like, oh, my goodness. And then I got in. And I usually don't order food in a coffee shop. But I ordered all this food and this coffee. And as soon as I'd ordered it, I suddenly thought, I wonder if there's a coffee commissary that's closer to where we live. So I looked it up and sure enough, there's one five minutes yeah. away from me. Of course. I was about right? to say, I'm like, yeah. I think you said you're downtown and I think there's one. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's one of the lock closer, yeah. So then what I have to do is I go, instead of thinking, oh, that's a contingent mistake, I went, okay, why is it that I remembered at the very moment that I was pot committed to staying in a coffee shop, I'd bought all this stuff. So I was like, well, do I not want to see my friend? Is there something that's happening that makes me not want to see him? And then I thought about it and I went, yes, actually, there is something, an underlying issue we need to talk about. And so what I realized is this contingent thing about me going to the wrong coffee shop was actually the truth, which is I I didn't want, I wanted to avoid seeing him. So what I have to do is I have to listen to the mistakes that I make. And sometimes they actually reveal the truth that I cannot reveal so to myself. So you're saying he was at the one five minutes away and yeah, you were driven exactly. 45 minutes. He had to, and, uh, and you made the choice when he when you looked up and found one five, 45 minutes away, you didn't text him and say, oh, is it 45 right. minutes away? Exactly. And you didn't look up for any other option. Mm-hmm. You just went. I just went. And I, only as soon as I was committed did it, did it make sense. Or a friend of mine, he went through a divorce and he has, he has three kids and he would go home every Thursday to read to his kids. And he forgot one week, very stressed at work, so much going on, did, forgot the day. And he felt really bad about this. Then a week later, he forgot again. And then a week later, he forgot again. And we were talking and his, his ex said to him, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make your kids hate you? And as we talked, he realized, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Mm. I'm trying to make my kids hate me because he so hated himself, but he, he wasn't confronting that. He was like partying, he was drinking, he was working. He was, he was avoiding 
confronting his own feelings. And so what he was doing was he was trying to make his children feel about him the way he felt about himself. And creating so, a punishment for himself yeah. without having to put in the work of facing what facing he didn't it. like, what he hated about himself. Exactly. And, and, the, and the reason why I could see it and anyone could see it really is because forgetfulness is one thing. I forget things. But you don't forget your kids. Like he, he never forgets to meet me. He never forgets a job meeting, but he forgets the most important people in his life. As soon as you kind of, that's when you start to see that the difference between forgetting because you're just, you know, forgetful. Like if you keep forgetting where your keys are when you're going to visit your mum, right? You go like, well, maybe you don't want to see your mum, right? <laughs> so there's, there's, it's, you have to, it's funny. It's like you have to be a detective to your own life. What a detective does, like if you like Columbo, he's my favourite. He goes into, a detective goes into a crime scene and the criminal has made everything look the way they want it to look. And all the police are fooled by it, right? So there's one Columbo episode, it was similar to this. They go into this house, this guy's died. Uh, it was smoke inhalation, right? The, the house was on fire. And everyone goes, oh, he's a smoker, he smokes 40 a day. Look, there's the cigarettes, fell on the sofa. That's what happened. And then Columbo, he walks in within 30 seconds, just walks over to one cigarette and looks at it. He says, uh, you see that on the end of the cigarette? Go, there's nothing there. Mm. Exactly. He says, when you smoke a cigarette, you suck. And when you suck in, you create a stain of tar on the, on the filter. There's no tar on the filter. He says, therefore, this cigarette's been lit but not smoked. Someone's been here. And has made it look as he's not a smoker. He's made it look like this guy smoked and killed himself, right? So what Columbo is doing is he's looking for the one thing that's out of place. Like, what's the one thing that's out of place in your life? That's the symptom. And he's going, that's the truth. That is the truth. So a symptom is an incarnation. It's where a contingent event suddenly takes on the truth of who you are. And that's what Hegel, the philosopher, calls a spirit as a boon where he says the, the spirit is a bone means the bone is just this rock and spirit is your subjectivity. Spirit is a bone means in the rock of your symptom, there you are. If I want to know who you are, Freud once said, he said, if you really look at somebody, you would think that they could not lie because even if they deceive you with their mouth, they will tell the truth through the tapping of their finger. They'll tell the truth through the little gestures in their eyes, right? In other words, when you, that we are always speaking the truth. Not with our mouths, obviously, not consciously, but we're always speaking the truth. And um, the symptom is the, the sight of truth. So what does it mean if my car is always disgusting? Uh, there you go. That's it. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Let's see. Oh, yeah, same. Okay, so let's quickly pause. The holidays are upon us. And as we were talking about, sometimes they can be painful. They can cause anxiety or sleepless nights. Or even if everything is going smoothly in your life, you might be having one of those 10-hour drives to go see your family and you know you will be dealing with some terrible back pain after. Well, we have a way to help you feel better. It's Feels. Feels is a premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. CBD has been proven to greatly reduce anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, and Feels is top notch. And it's so easy. All you do is place a few drops of Feels under your tongue, and you will feel the difference within minutes. Personally, Feels has helped a lot with my anxiety. When I start feeling anxious, all I have to do is take a few drops and I experience a lot of relief and I have pretty bad chronic back pain. And since taking Feels, 
I've seen a huge difference. But navigating the world of CBD can be complicated. Um, Fields wants to make sure that the process is as simple as possible for you. So you can start feeling better sooner. So Fields offers a free CBD hotline and text message support to help guide your personal experience. They are super accommodating and kind and will answer any of your questions, no matter how big or small. And Feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, no hangover or addiction. You join the Feels Feels community and sign up for the membership to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. Feels has me feeling my best every day and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash chatty and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash chatty, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash chatty to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash chatty. But it's so interesting that like when you're talking about this idea that then you have this story that the nativity that sticks out with everything and a group of people who were expecting what was maybe what would be commonplace in the day that their salvation would come in war would come with Mm. power would come with all this expectation. And yet here's this, uh, child who comes and it's vastly different and that that somehow has stuck out in history and been so like this affects people who are like we're saying this isn't just a christian thing this is yeah you know worldwide for the most part and there's something about this specific story that will still rattle us because i mean still in this day and age what is revered is power and warfare and all these things still yes and yet we're locked on to the idea of uh salvation coming in like something dirty yeah. but innocence. Yeah, and I was just thinking about what you were saying, talking about the symptom and and what I'm kind of gleaning from that is that mean the meaning is what's in what's out of place and the meaning is in what's not really supposed to be there. And I think that maybe for for those people who the meaning now of the nativity is lost, maybe there's a lack of context on what's yeah. out of place in the mm-hmm. story in terms of the uh, historical context or, or the culture of the time. And maybe, maybe we can look at what's out of place in that story and how yeah. that creates meaning. And it's the most out of place thing of it ever. It's, a, it's that God is, is, a, is a child. You know, spirit is bone, God is child. Like, we don't realize how absurd that is. And it, absurd in the philosophical meaning, it's the, it's the coincidence of opposites. People think, it's actually not even, you know, not even confessionally Christian because people think of God as all-powerful creator of the universe. Omnipresent, yeah, but absolutely. also helpless at the same time. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So Soren Kierkegaard, one of the real founders of modern philosophy and theology, but, you know, he's, he, he wants us to feel the absurdity of this. He wants us to feel how crazy this is before then asking, what does it even mean? You go like, it's absolutely insane. And also, you mentioned this is not like for the original people. This was not even a Christian thing because it was pre-Christian. Mm-hmm. This was happening within Judaism. It was a, it was some, it was an, it was an explosion of an absurd idea in a political and religious context. Um, that that in a way is like a, 
we don't feel anymore. We don't feel the craziness right. of it. Yeah, like, can, well, we look everything, at, can we unpack that absurdity yeah. of it? Everything. Like the, th- the wild part about it is everything was absurd, right? The main character for the most part of this was a girl, first of all, which was intense. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I mean, you're not dealing with women being the, the figurehead. Yeah. You have a young girl who's um, a virgin who's not associated with a man yet. And that's the person who... Uh, uh, angel goes to and speaks to that's already absurd yeah the piece of the shepherds coming who are like dirty scum is absurd that they're the ones heralding a message from god all these people who are associated with the godheads in this story are all kind of like the lowest of the low yeah let's can we unpack one by one kind of these elements of what makes it sort of absurd and you touched on maybe the first one of this main character and maybe maybe can we unpack that further yeah that's good i mean the, the way I think about it is like there's two broad buckets of, of absurdity in this. And the first is the craziness of the story in its historical context. Mm-hmm. As you say, like a complete outsider, a woman, a young woman, uh, unmarried, uh, someone who has no voice, no significance in, that, in, in, the, in the culture, who is the who births God, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is the mother of God. Uh, you know, that that is an incredible. Again, that's out of place. That's a, that's a rupture in the whole structure of meaning. This, by the way, is why, uh, sorry to come back to Kierkegaard again, but he says something very funny. He pretty much says, whatever you think about Christianity, please don't think of Christ uh, as wise or good, right? You can say anything else you want about him, but don't say he was a wise man or a good man. Um, and it's, it was one of the things that annoyed him so much because he said that the whole image of Christ is, uh, strikes us as immoral and foolishness. Like the whole, you, everything about him is, is, is about the, the people we think who are, who are in charge, aren't in charge, the people who are right or wrong, the, the people that we despise are actually the people where God is with. Like there's something about Christ who offends our notions of morality and offends our notions of wisdom. And this is a perfect example of it is you would never have thought that this would be where God would enter the world. So that at first is a, a complete turning of all of our understanding of power and authority yeah so the two elements then are that that this is here is an emperor who is in a manger not a mansion who who doesn't have an army of force but of forgiveness who actually also forgives before repentance that was a big thing because everybody believed in you know forgiving someone who repents every caesar would have that you would someone would repent and the caesar could either kill them or have mercy on them Mm. right but, but the, only after they repented. Only after they yeah. repented, yeah. But the weird thing about uh, Christianity, one of the innovations of Christ was um, was he seemed to say, no, it's fine. And, if, you know, if grace is, you're okay, you don't have to change, you don't have to do anything. And, of course, the answer to that is, oh, my goodness, then you'll just do whatever you want. But the idea is whenever I forgive you, that act of forgiveness is so powerful that it makes you want to change. So if you've done something against me and I and you're all defensive and go, like, I did nothing wrong. And then I see you and I go, listen, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about it. You're great. Don't 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 even consider it. And that you will more likely go, oh, yeah, actually, I'm really sorry. I, I was a bit of an asshole. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually the, the the experience of accepting that you're accepted. That's the definition of grace, the acceptance that you're accepted. If you can accept my acceptance of you, it actually transforms you. 
So again, this is the turning around of all of these things that we just take for granted. Uh, it was phenomenal. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think of the specific example. I think um, he Jesus healed a lame man and said, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And sort of like the, the guy wasn't like, please, Lord, forgive me or anything yeah. like that. He was just like, OK, get up. You're 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 good without that repentance that you're talking about. So that makes sense. Putting that in context and that makes sense of how that would be really countercultural, like not having to beg for repentance in order to be forgiven. That's it. still has a lot of significance. Oh yeah, absolutely. In the way we live our interpersonal lives. Yeah. It kind of cuts across what we naturally assume. Like I I would, if we had time, which we wouldn't be able to, but unpack how so much of this is just counter to, to how we are psychologically how we grew up. Um, so for example, the forgiveness of sin is a great example. Sin's a difficult one because people think sin is being bad or something, but it actually has a very precise meaning. Sin means separation or lack. And we all feel lack in our lives. Uh, we feel like that's every time you try to, you know, get married or get money or do this or do that. It's often you're doing it because you feel a lack and you think, if only I got this, then I would be good. So we have this experience of lack. And what we think is we think, The way to think about lack, by the way, is a debt, right? If you have a debt, you owe money. So there's a lack of money, right? Uh, Now, there's a difference between two types of nothingness. Here's philosophy. Uh, uh, If you have no money, that's a lack. You have no money. But if you have debt, that's a nothingness that is something, right? So, Or there's a difference between not talking to your partner because you're both just sitting there and not talking to your partner, Mm -hmm. right? There's two types of silence, (laughs) right? Right. so there's two types of lack. There's lack of money and then there's the lack of money debt. And debt destroys you. You have to do a job, you hate, you have to, it gives you like anxiety, all of this. Now to pay a debt is to fill the lack, right? If I pay a debt, I take, oh, you $100? Well, here's $100. I fill the lack, I, I pay the debt. But to forgive a debt is different. If I forgive a debt, I don't say, oh, here's the money. I say the nothingness that is something is nothing. See that money that you owe me, that debt, it's nothing, right? So whenever I say, whenever you say forgive a debt, what that means is the lack that you feel in your life, that you're trying to fill with family, with kids, with money, with fame, with looks, is forgiven. That lack doesn't mean, it's not that you, you, you can fill it with something, it's that you can rob it of its sting. We're all lacking and that's okay. It's wonderful. In fact, that's what makes life so exciting is that we're all what's called castrated in the psychoanalysis. We, we all lack. We fantasize there's someone who doesn't. We're always looking around thinking someone's got everything, right? But that's a complete fantasy. We all have some sort of lack and that's okay. So again, this notion of forgiveness of the lack rather than payment of the lack is phenomenal. Like that's Uh, amazing for us today, especially in LA where it's the most religious place in the world. Everyone's looking to fill the lack through (laughs) money, fame, looks, yoga, whatever it is. And and so the idea that you can, you can live with that lack is stunning. Uh, That comes, Mm. that uh, ties into what I heard you talking about this morning, listening to that podcast episode. I can't remember which philosopher you quoted, but it, um, the definition of therapy being like coming to terms with the unhappiness of the uh, every day. Yes. yes, yes. And I think that that directly ties into that concept. It does, absolutely, 100%. And, and this actually brings it to the, the maybe the, the universal dimension of the incarnation because, you know, the way I mentioned that uh, in an incarnation, there's what, what you could call, we'll use the term singular, particular, universal. So a singular event happens, the sinking of a ship 
right? Mm-hmm. Singular vision. That's a singular, it just happens. It's a contingent event. But then it has particular meaning for the generation, right? The end of European civilization, the beginning of war, etc. But then it has a universal dimension, which is something that, that continues to speak beyond its particular utility, moment. Utility, mm-hmm. like you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some deeper meaning, which is, could be the futility of life and the, 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 that, you know, nothing works. Even our biggest ships, we have to still confront death. You know, you still have to hit the iceberg, right? You know, the end of the world is coming for everybody, right? Um, so in the same way, you could say that there's something about the particular in Christ, which is a, 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 basically an addressing the political situation of the day. But then there's also a universal dimension. And what's that? And um, I think this is captured in a good joke from Northern Ireland, right? In Northern Ireland, we had a 30-year war called the Troubles. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know much about it, but it finished in 1998. And uh, one of the techniques that the IRA used to use is they used to plant incendiary devices in buildings. And then they would phone up the police and say, like, you've got five minutes to get everybody out or 10 minutes to get everybody out, right? This happened all the time. And uh, there was this joke going around school at the time that this guy who was in the IRA, this guy called Seamus, right, he dies and he goes up to heaven. And he's sitting at the pearly gates and he's waiting to get in. And eventually St. Peter comes with a big book, sets the book down, opens it up, big dusty old book, you know. And he's in, you know, looking at this book for about half an hour, goes through it and he looks up at Seamus and says, listen, mate, he says, your name's not in the book. You're in the IRA, you're not getting in. And Seamus looks at him and says, no, no, you misunderstand. He says, I'm not trying to get in. you got five minutes to get out. <laughs> now, I love that little story because I think that's the heart of, of Christmas is that we're all trying to escape our humanity. We're all trying to escape our lack. We're all trying to get into heaven, wherever that is, money, fame, family, whatever. It's, we, want to, we want to escape the antagonisms of our lives. We want to get into that heavenly place of pure peace. But the, the story of Christmas is the story of actually getting the absolute out of heaven into the grit and grime of the world, that actually where meaning is found is in the dirt of life. It's a beautiful image of going like, if you want to become like God, you have to become human, fully human. Because we all want to become like God. We all want to escape our humanity. That's what Caesar was about. But this story goes, oh yeah, you want to become like the absolute? Well then embrace your full humanity. Because and in that embrace, you will be standing in the very sight of the divine. Sure, because maybe there is no pinnacle of human experience. Yeah, maybe the pinnacle of human experience is accepting the misery that you're in every day. Exactly that. Yeah, <laughs> which isn't really sad. You know, yeah. it, it's not if you can if you can accept it in term in instead of seeking like you're talking about to fill this emptiness that may forever be empty yeah. if we're constantly searching to fill it. Because that, that's the good news of the world, which is bad news. The good news of the world is you can fill that, you can, you can get to the place where everything is perfect and beautiful. Uh, but that's bad news because the more you believe that, the more dissatisfied and anxious it's you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the bad news that you can't be whole and you can't be complete and you have to embrace the difficulties of life, that's actually good news because when you do it, you realize that actually that's where the enjoyment of life is. This is actually the, the um, this is beautifully captured in the difference between the pleasure principle and the reality principle. So the pleasure principle is this idea that we seek pleasure. Like I want to climb all the trees I can. I want to eat all the chocolate I can. I want to um, win all the games that I play. Mm-hmm. That's the pleasure principle. And then the reality principle is, 
You can't eat all the chocolate you want because your mum won't let you. You can't climb all the trees you want because your body won't let you. You can't win all the games you want because your friends won't let you. So reality principle gets in the way of pleasure. But what Freud realized very early on was that actually it's the reality principle that gives you the pleasure principle. If you got rid of all of the obstacles and you were able to climb Mount Everest immediately, uh, you were able to get a billion dollars without thinking, you were able to get everything you Mm. want without obstacle, you wouldn't be left with happiness. It would be actually hell. Heaven would be hell. Which comes full circle when when we talked about relationships in the beginning. Yes. And like this, this dance of obstacle like a little bit of chaos and you know this i I don't mean i don't want to like romanticize poverty or struggle or anything Mm, like that by any means but um it's kind of funny when i went on the bachelor two years ago you know i still am young i'm 24 right now and coming off of the show you know when i was little all i wanted was to be famous Mm. all i wanted was to be a celebrity and i was like that has got to be the coolest thing you could possibly be and of course when i was working as a nanny and i was struggling in college and all this you're like I remember saying, if I could just get to be rich enough where I could pay the $15 parking fee at the beach and not think about it, then I would be happy. If I could just pay that $15 parking fee and not give a shit, that'd be great. (laughs) And then I came off of the show and, um, I mean, it's a bachelor. It's not like I was fucking Jennifer Aniston or anything like that, but (laughs) there's a certain level of fame where like people are recognizing you like on the street fairly often, like at the airport, like people are wanting to take photos with you in the first few months after. And there's a certain level of fame people, you know, you're going on talk shows and people are talking about you and, and you're th- finally happy you yeah. finally got there you finally <laughs> and, were and fulfilled she's, and she did also, it. <laughs> financial stability yeah. without having to try of being able to you know work on social media and all this sort of thing and make money without really lifting a finger in a certain sense and oh my god I mean I know it's a cliche but it was one of the most like depressing years of my life yeah. and it was so hard for me to grapple with like what the fuck do I do now yeah and even now I really struggle with like, I'll come up with ideas of like little side hustles of like little jobs and stuff I could do. And then I, I think like, what's the point? Like yeah. I'm already financially stable. Like why would I, you know, spend my time doing this? This would only be fun back if I was 20 again, like struggling. Yes. And it's, and it, it yeah, just yes. like realizing all yeah. of that is really depressing yeah. when you actually get to all those things that you really did think you're going to make, even though people say, you know, money and fame can't buy you happiness. A lot of us don't really, well, we believe don't really that. believe it. We don't no. really believe it. I think um, even yeah. like as simple as like for our listeners, so many of our listeners are married. And I would say this oh, yeah. when I was, I dated my husband for many years and we would always go back and forth. Cause I'd be like, I'm unhappy in this part of like, our relationship and it'll all be settled if you'll just fucking marry me (laughs) put a ring on my finger and then it'll be fine and we'll move in to our little home together and everything's gonna be great and we got married and the first year of our marriage was really bad Uh yeah because there was that expectation of that as soon as you get what you want everything's gonna be beautiful and peachy keen and then all of a sudden we're married and i'm sure a lot of people could relate like hey once you get married it doesn't fix your problems in fact sometimes it just Sometimes you have more lack <laughs> yeah. once you get right. everything that you want. You suddenly mm-hmm. have this more lack, but 
of something that you now have no idea because where how to fill because before yeah. you had this lack and you thought if i get fame and money and like marriage and all this stuff then that's gonna fill this lack but then yes. when you still have a lack you're like what the fuck do i fill this with yes. like yeah you, you're robbed that even of the fantasy so it's even yes, worse because right. at least before you have the fantasy <laughs> of something then, to chase yes but now you're like you're left with <laughs> yeah. the, with the brokenness and not even a fantasy right. uh rennie gerard philosopher he once said that he said imagine a man in a field a rocky field and he's told there's a treasure under one of the rocks but he's lifted up so many rocks and he hasn't found the treasure René Girard said eventually he will seek a rock so heavy he cannot lift and what Girard is basically saying is that sometimes we want to continue to have the fantasy that something will work and we'll we'll just create more and more obstacles rather than face this idea that yeah, I mean, money can get you a better shower. Uh, when I moved to America, I had a patron who was supporting my work and he lent me this beautiful house and I had, you can get good air conditioning and all of that, but nice. it doesn't, it doesn't fix the existential angst in your, in yeah. your life. Even the winners lose. This is called the, the failure of success. In a sense, you, you succeed and in succeeding, you hit a fundamental failure, but that's the first step to the, the success that's in failure, which is when you fully confront that failure, then you can move into something much, much richer, much how you, better. How do you st- begin to confront that kind of failure and confront that emptiness yeah like what is the what is like this christmas story teaching us of Mm. like what that that the grittiness like yeah what does that look like practically to get to that yeah i mean this is actually interesting about the story because you know people think well why do you need this this indirect approach to embracing your humanity right why why do you need this notion of like i want to become like god and god becomes fully human so i confront my full humanity but actually that's the way we work is that that often, it's again, if someone goes to a psychoanalyst, they want to escape their suffering. They're there because they want to get rid of it. They do want to face it. Just get me fixed again. Just get me right. And then the analyst has to very, very subtly over time help you face what you cannot face on your own. It's just like when Kierkegaard said about music is it's so difficult to confront these difficulties and the lack Um, that we'll do anything to avoid it. We need art, we need music, we need friends, we need liturgical structures that help us do it because it's so hard. So in a sense, there's never a direct route to your humanity. It's always indirect. Uh, And so this idea is like you identify with with God and this story and you, I want to, because all God is, is the one who lacks the lack. In a sense that, just think about it as God is the one who is whole and complete. So we want to be whole and complete. We want that. And then through the nativity, we confront our humanity. Um, that's, that's why I do the work that I do is because I go like, we can't do it directly. In fact, weirdly to believe as human, to doubt divine, right? To believe and to have and to, to, to kind of pursue wholeness and complete, that's easy for us to do, really. We, can, we believe that naturally, that something's out there that's going to fix us. But if we want to embrace doubt, complexity and ambiguity, if we want to look at the, our own suffering, then we need we need a lot of help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's just like the idea of maybe having Christmas and I'm thinking about like someone who's maybe sitting alone right now and maybe doesn't have family during the holidays and feels like the lowest that they can be or whatever, maybe lost someone recently, like in their family and just the idea of this story and like 
the grittiness and the like trauma that really came from the story. The idea that at this moment, when you first came in here and talked about what, like walking into the dark and that's then where you're ultimately going to find the light. The idea of like this nativity coming around to winter solstice where it's like the darkest days, but we know like in a couple weeks, it's mm. going to be the brightest days again. And to know that like there's this idea of this nativity and like winter solstice in the end maybe of 2019 or whatever it may be where you might be in like the darkest moment of your life right now. But like that means that that's where you have to go to find your light, which maybe seems simple. It's not going to be that house on the hill, yeah. but it's maybe just coming to terms with the fact that your existence here is what might be the most beautiful thing of all. Yes. It's a, it's a crazily like instead of going away from the darkness is turning the darkness up even more because the strange thing is, it's, well, it'll make sense. I think in a second is actually so much depression is connected to this unconscious often belief that there's something that would work. If I had only been with him, it would have been, it would have been amazing. If I'd only got that job, if only, if only I was healthier, if only I looked a certain way. So it, every time you do that, you have this fantasy that if only you had this thing, what's called object A or sacred object, everything would be wonderful. Even if that thing is just happiness itself. Yeah. Too. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Yeah. So when you turn it up even more, you get to this point where you go, that doesn't exist. And weirdly, that's where you're free. You're going like, oh, I could have been with that person and it could have been good, but it, but it would have still had its struggles, right? I could have had, you know, there's, there's no escape from the deadlocks and antagonisms of reality. And in fact, funnily enough, in, in, in physics, we see this, that reality itself is a deadlock. What's called wave particle duality is the universe has deadlock built into it. In biology, it's called evolution. In mathematics, it's Gödel's uncertainty principle or incompleteness theorem. Um, so you've got... So this, um, this, these antagonisms you feel is, is part of reality. So in, in a way, when you're in the darkest place, you're experiencing the truth. More so than me, who's running around trying to get into the Christmas spirit, sing Christmas carols mm. and think everything's great. You are in the truth. And if you can embrace that truth, you will find a way into a new type of life, a deeper type of life, a more enriching type of life. But every time we fantasize about something that will fix us, that, that's, that's, that's what causes so, all of the problems we can imagine. Yeah, it's a little ironic, isn't it, that we live in a culture that um, is, is basically selling us on like this um, pinnacle of human experience mm. of finally getting to a place where we're happy. Yeah. But then the irony is that so many people in America, like the vast majority, are like, why the fuck am I not happy yeah. like that? Mm -hmm. yeah. And the reality is I don't think that's really anyone's experience unless yeah. they're... I don't know. I've met some people like that, you know, who are just like, I've got, you know, everything is bad. Yeah. And I'm at peace. Like, and I'm like, well, or they're just fucking <laughs> kidding themselves. <laughs> yeah. And or, yeah. Or they don't realize that they're full of it, but they're kidding themselves. We're and, all very good at that. Yeah. And, and wanting to be the person that's happy and wanting to be the person that's like stoked on life. And, and it's confusing, I think, for a lot of people because they're like, why do I not, why can I not get to that place yeah. that it seems like so many other people are at this place of like happiness and it doesn't really exist uh, or it's just fleeting or it's, it's fleeting. temporary. That's, well, yeah. that's the other thing. This is the difference between pleasure and hap uh, pleasure and happiness. If you think of like Christmas, 
uh, happiness is opening the Christmas present and pleasure or actually I should use the, the proper words enjoyment and pleasure we'll use those two words mm. that pleasure is the opening of the present and that's fleeting and that's never that impressive right and the enjoyment is the waiting for the present <laughs> now the problem is most of us can't enjoy our enjoyment so if you see a child waiting for Christmas, they're wetting themselves, <laughs> they're so frustrated, they just want the present. They're in, you can see them, they're in, they're in enjoyment, but they're not enjoying their enjoyment, they're experiencing it as suffering. So yes, yeah, anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. yeah. So the trick is how do we enjoy our enjoyment? Because yes, there are moments of pleasure, which is like if you're watching your football team and they win, you go, ah, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, we're really happy. But the real enjoyment is in being with your team when they're losing and winning. And like if your team won every time, there'd be, all the enjoyment would be robbed of it. This actually connects. The reason why I wanted to use the word enjoyment is because joy is basically the happiness of not getting what you want. It's the... Um, it's the pleasure you get in the struggle of life itself. But in our society and in our subjectivity, we're always so focused on pleasure, the moment, when we can't enjoy the movement and the struggle itself. So a lot of it is just simply refocusing yourself and going, oh yeah, like I'm looking at houses to buy and I think that I just want the house. But actually what I really enjoy is looking on the internet and going yeah. around the houses. <laughs> Welcome to yeah. my life. Yes, they say, I'm yeah. still looking on Redfin every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's where the real enjoyment is. Yeah. And so a lot of people realize, because there's two parts, there's what's called the object of desire, which is the house, and the object cause of desire, which is actually what gets in the way of you getting the house. So if you get the object of your desire, then you lose the object cause of your desire. So you no longer desire what you desire. So you have the house and you no longer want it. So the question is, you go. so a lot of it is just going like, oh, I actually really do directly enjoy the looking online mm -hmm. and doing all of that. And, and that very change of focus can actually help you enjoy your enjoyment. I love that too, sorry, just because yeah. the word joy is so central in like the holiday season yeah, that's like yeah. such a focus of christmas is always the word joy and but i feel like just by nature we're looking for the happiness in christmas it's the buying of presents for everyone mm. it's going to the parties it's hanging out with the it's family not having christmas presents for people and panicking about <laughs> Full that, panic, you know? and then having yes. the major post-holiday <laughs> blues afterwards being like well like looking around at like all the wrapping paper and being like i guess i gotta clean all this shit up now <laughs> i just hung up yeah. but it's like we were talking about earlier with you decorating it's now enjoying the month of of looking at like setting up the tree and looking at the tree yes. instead of that moment of like you know no, and the enjoyment was me stringing cranberries with dental floss <laughs> yeah. and a needle and being yeah. like this is so fucking tedious why am i doing this okay let's pause quickly for one last time we have to be honest we couldn't really have a holiday episode without talking about fab fit fun our personal christmas present all year round. At least that's what it feels like when it arrives at your front door. Uh, FabFitFun is the lifestyle subscription box filled with full-size premium beauty, lifestyle, fitness, home, and wellness products sent straight to your doorstep each season. And each box is customized to your specific interests. We love a box filled with choices. Yes, FabFitFun. Uh, FabFitFun retails for $49.99, but always has a value of over $200. I mean, you get your money's worth in this box. In fact, many products cost more than you pay for the entire box, especially with this winter box, which is now on sale. Uh, the winter box has some amazing products, amazing like 
Kate Somerville Goat Milk Moisturizing Cream, Insane Arnco Shampoo and Conditioner, a Rose Gold Swarovski Bracelet, and a whole lot more. Oh, and the winner's charity partner for FabFitFun is the Women's Alzheimer Movement, dedicated to raising awareness about women's increased risk for Alzheimer's and to educating the public about lifestyle changes that can uh, that they can make to protect their brain health. We love FabFitFun, and we know you love FabFitFun too, so we have a code for you. Uh, use code coupon code CHATTY to get $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com, making it only $39.99 for more than $200 worth of amazingness. Again, that's coupon code CHATTY for $10 off your first box at fabfitfun.com. You know, when you're talking about this, I I was thinking the other day of like, who are the people that I know that are like really happy? And a person that came to mind is my dad. I'm like, he is one of the people I know that is like genuinely like one of the most happy people. And as you're talking about recognizing and being able to enjoy this enjoyment, that is like how he Mm. lives every day of his life. And he always tells me, he's like, I love starting new businesses and having them fail and all that because it's like, it's about the pursuit. And that's the... That's the fun part for me. And he's the same way with houses where I swear to God, as I was growing up, every fucking Sunday after church, we would be going to a goddamn open house, you know, and looking at the house and saying like, which one would be our room. And my dad would always have like a new car, even if it wasn't a new car, he would always be switching out cars and, you know, buying a different old car and all this kind of thing. And, uh, but it wasn't like this pursuit of trying to find the next thing that's going to make me happy. It was just enjoying the in-between phase of looking forward to this next thing yeah. and and being okay with the failure because there's going to be just something else, another failure yeah. and maybe another success that comes along and just sitting in that in-between place. And and it also makes him way less stressed about things yes. because when, when the relationships with his children are awry, when things are not going well with business, it's just like, well, this is part of the dance of, mm. of movement. And of, he will be healthier. He will live longer, less stress in his life. This is why I hated my sister, by the way, because at, at, at Halloween, not Halloween, Easter, when he got Easter eggs, I would eat my Easter egg immediately to stuff it in my mouth <laughs> as quickly as possible. And my sister would nibble and then put it in the fridge, rewrap it and put it in the fridge and then come back in the next day, nibble a little bit more and then put it back in the fridge. She could make an Easter egg last for a year, right? And I hated it because I was I was looking for the object of satisfaction, eat the egg, and then I'm unhappy as soon as it's finished. She knew that the pleasure was partly in pissing me off and partly in kind of just the, the never finishing the egg. And just in waiting this, for the it. Waiting, waiting for, for that time of day when she would unwrap it yeah. and have that little bite. She was much happier than me, you know. So because when, when, you, when you have the object, you're unhappy if you don't have it and you're unhappy when you have it. That's it. So you, you lose when you lose and you lose when you win. We live mm. in a society where even the winners lose. The losers lose doubly, but even the winners lose. Um, and how can we create a community around a shared lack? And there are examples. And we'll, I'll just give you one example. AA. A, so there's two types of community. A community that focuses around a shared thing that you can have. And that always ends up in scapegoating. Because if you believe in a perfect utopia, then you have to blame someone for it not working. So what you do is you take the contradiction and you turn it into opposition. You say, well, it's because of those people over there that we don't have. spoiling all the... Yeah, spoiling all the fun, good, right? Yeah. We want to get rid of them. And right or left, whoever, to some group that is the, is the, the, the scapegoat, literally the carrier of the lack. 
But then you can have communities that go, hold on, we have to carry our own lack. And those communities then take on their own brokenness in a community of grace where everyone is accepted. So in AA, you sit there and you're in a place where you're accepted. And before you even get onto the first step, there's step zero. Just like in European lips, there's zero floor. In America, it's always the first floor. Uh-huh. Zero is a number. Zero is one because you can count it, right? So zero. <laughs> the first step is step zero. And step zero is just you're in a community of grace where everyone accepts you. And that allows you to speak your truth. You say, I'm an alcoholic. And then you can begin to change. So the community is actually focused around a shared lack. We're all broken. You know, in the past, I said I wasn't an alcoholic. In the past, I said it was other people's fault. In the past, I blamed my work, my family and all of that. But now I'm in a place where I can just admit my own lack, that my I'm own the problem. that I'm the problem. That is, you know, and as soon as you do that, you begin to change. So create, and even Burning Man in its original form was a, a community around a lack, a burning of an effigy, right? So we're we were unified, not in our shared belief, but in our shared lack. Actually, the Last Supper is a perfect example, a, a community that binds together around the death of God, the lack of God. So it, I think it is possible to create communities in which we embrace the lack. And my belief is that as more and more of us do this individually and communally, we can actually have a very positive effect on our, in our country and in our communities. Because actually most of the human evil that we see in the world is either pursuing something that we think will fill the lack or hating someone else because we think they've got it and we don't. Uh, there's an old, I think it's a Romanian parable, it says this farmer has uh, is a, is a, is been working all his life and so an angel comes to him and says, you know, God has seen how much you've worked and he wants to bless you and so he wants to give you whatever you want, whatever you want. And the farmer's about to speak and then the the angel stops him and says, no, it gets even better than that because whatever God gives you, he's going to give your neighbor double. And so the farmer looks at the angel and says, well, take one of my eyes. Fascinating thing, which is sometimes that we so hate the other that we, you know, that we would rather, we would hurt ourselves in order to hurt the other. Because we often fantasize that the other has something that we want and we so want to hurt them that we'll even destroy ourselves. So for me, if I could tell you one more joke from Ireland that I think fills this in yes. and then we can go anywhere else. But I think it captures it. Um, it's a story about this rich Texan, right? Uh, he made a fortune in oil, uh, but his great, great grandfather came from Ireland. So he goes back to visit. And when he gets there, he, he looks up the ancestry. He goes to Galway and he finds this little uh, uh, little farmhouse where there's a relative and he knocks on the door and this this old guy, Seamus, opens the door, right? And the Texan says, oh, you know, we're related. So my great, 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 great grandfather left the Emerald Isles, went to America, made a fortune in oil, and now I'm back to retrace my roots. So Seamus says, oh, come on, have a cup of tea. So they're drinking tea, and then the, the Texan says, uh, you want to show me around your farm? And so Seamus says, absolutely, brings him out the back and says, you see that old tractor there? He says, that tractor to here, that's all mine. And he says, and that tree stump to here, that's all mine. Oh, and that little broken fence to here? He says, that's all mine. And the Texan laughs, he laughs. He says, back home, he says, I can get in my car and I can drive all day north, I wouldn't get to the end of my land. He says, I could drive all day east, I wouldn't get to the end of my property, or all day west or all day south. And Seamus looks at him and says, ah, he says, I know how you feel. He says, I used to have a car like that as well. 
That, <laughs> that is the truth right there. I think if you can understand that, you can understand the meaning of Christianity, which is we can all pretend that we've got the thing, you know, the money, the mm. land or whatever. But you know what? We've all got broken cars. We can't escape the lack. Even when you've got everything, you'll just be confronted with the lack. And it's in Seamus's Christological insight. Like, I have a broken car. We all got broken cars. We're all struggling. That that insight can free us from a negative form of being in the world, can help us be more gracious to ourselves and the people around us, and can help us to avoid scapegoating. Because when you can't carry your own lack, you get someone else to carry it, which means you make poor people, you make homeless people, you make prison mm. populations mm. you all of that those are not the problem the prison population homeless population is not, it's the solution to a problem it's a solution to a problem in our society that we cannot see so when we go to the homeless we are not good news to them they are good news to us because they show us a problem within our own community they show us what we cannot face they are the truth that we cannot look at they are the symptom of our world the symptom of our world symptom by the way sounds like santon and there's a psychoanalyst Lacan says Santom in French sounds like holy man, which means prophet. The symptom is a prophet that speaks the truth. So you listen to the, the prophet, the symptom, it will speak the truth. If you listen to that, you will be changed. And if you refuse to listen to the prophet, it will speak devastation. And so the question is, can we embrace our lack? Can we look at our symptoms individually, our bad backs and our, our inability to sleep and our anxiety? Can we look at our communal symptoms uh, in terms of homelessness or mental health provision, whatever? And can we allow those to, to speak into us? And mm. will that allow us to create a better world? And can mm. we admit that that's what we're doing, that we're not pouring into when we go into, uh, you know, fucking Africa and we say oh I'm going on a, my two week mission trip to help these people can we admit and say I'm actually going for these two weeks to inform myself of yes. what my lack is yes. in my life they I'm are not, my salvation I'm not going to That's pour it. myself you know and if we can admit that to ourselves and saying I'm not going to feed the homeless to pour into them it's to enlighten me about what I need to change yeah. in my life I mean, if we can get honest about that that's pretty radical yeah. mm -hmm. I mean that, that, that could be the very very heart of the message of Christ because in the crucifixion there's this idea that Christ is the one you have to kill to get to God and then you realize that Christ is God in other words the obstacle mm -hmm. that you think you have to get rid of to get to God is God so with the apostle Paul he has a conversion he's trying to get rid of this small band of people called Christians it could be anybody he thinks if we can get rid of the Christians we can get back to true religion and then he hears a voice saying why are you persecuting me in other words, the very group that he thinks is the problem is where God is speaking. And that's what transforms him. So, yeah, when we look at kind of whatever group that we think, oh, we have to get rid of that group, that is the site that speaks the truth. And if we listen to that, we can be transformed. So we need to be saved. This is about what Christianity is about. It's about being a person who is willing to be born again and say, I'm the one who needs salvation. I need saved. Yeah, what's that mm -hmm. saying? The something about like hatred is a mirror or something yeah. like that. And what are we really seeing in the people that we despise? Maybe it's the thing that we despise within ourselves. That's it. Like whether even so, for, take a, take the most extreme example of fascism. Fascism is a group of people who go, we are 
we want to get back to an organic relationship with the world. There's a kind of organic wholeness to community and the figure of the Jewish community. The Jewish community are preventing that with their abstraction, with their power. And if we can get rid of the Jews, then we can get back to wholeness and completeness. But what the fascist community doesn't realize is actually the Jewish community is preventing them from seeing their own brokenness. If they got rid of the Jewish community, they would just be confronted with the lack. The scapegoat mechanism is that we take, we cannot face our own lack and we put it onto somebody else. And so this idea is going like, we become like the fascist community when we have some group that we think we just have to get rid of and everything will be fine rather than the A community that can embrace the lack. But it can also be homelessness or something. You can go like, oh, if we could get rid of the homeless population, but you're treating the homeless population like a cancer you can cut out. What if the homeless population is exists in its form because there are issues within the society? And of course, you should look after homeless people, but you should also ask why homeless people exist. What does it say about... if we build more houses or is, or is this a... More systemic. Not, not that we shouldn't yeah. do those things like you're saying, not that we shouldn't take care of people, but look at the greater systemic issues that are creating this... Exactly. Problem. Just as in, as individuals, if, we, if we're trying to get rid of a symptom like, oh, I, you know, I crunch my teeth at night, you go, okay, that's fair enough. You maybe want to come guard or whatever. But also maybe ask yourself, like, it maybe, maybe, maybe you're in a relationship where you want to be, you want to shout at the person, you're angry at the person, but you're afraid to express that because then they might break up with you. And so the clenching of your teeth in your sleep is the amalgamation of conflictual desire. I want to speak, but I want to stay quiet. And as you come to terms, as you begin to understand that, the symptom begins to dissipate. Yeah, you can get a gum guard. That's nothing wrong with that. But if you understand the symptom, you can dissipate it. It's hard work, but we have to be detectives to our own bodies. Yeah. Uh, I just want we, we could just go on and on. I just wanted to say <laughs> one last thing. My brain was kind of going in another direction and was thinking about how, and maybe the, the problem is, is that we're approaching our problems with the idea that acquisition will be, will give us happiness when maybe part of the antidote is creation. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about for looking at the symbolism of the Bible and talking about the Genesis story even, and, and God, if God is all powerful, could create everything in the snap of a finger conceptually. But what does it mean that this omnipowerful being created all of these things in the course of seven days and worked to the point of needing to rest on the seventh day, even this, even though this is an all powerful being and, uh, thinking about how maybe that's a message that even if we can, like maybe what we're chasing, what we're chasing oftentimes is to be able to have everything in the snap of the finger, right? Mm -hmm. The fame or the wealth to be able to acquire things when we want them. But that, 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 that true enjoyment, like you were talking about is enjoying the creation of, not the thing yeah. that we get at the end, but that process. Yes. And just thinking about how can we bring moments of creation into our lives, whether that's, you know, uh, making a song or painting or whatever, but maybe going back to what in my job, even if it is a desk job, what am I creating on yeah. a daily basis and how can I pour my heart into that creation? And then what happens, which is amazing, is then the, the uh, what do you call it, the externality or the, um, the, the outworking of that, which you don't even realize, is that a better life. So what happens is when you stop thinking about the 
object that you want and you start enjoying the struggle. You enjoy the struggle, but as you struggle forward, say you're a writer, you embrace, if you're a writer and you think, I want to write the best book ever, that is nine times out of 10 going to stop you from writing the book, right? But if you are a writer and you're able to think, I just enjoy the struggle of the writing, then what you'll find is you'll keep writing books, but the books aren't the important bit, but you'll end up in 10 years, you'll have written 10 books. If you, if you think the book and the book launch is going to make you happy, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to be unhappy working towards the book because you're just thinking, I just want to get the book finished. I want to get the book finished. And then you're going to be unhappy when that terrible day comes when you launch the book because literally nothing happens, right? <laughs> but if you just enjoy the struggle, you do it and then you write books and you can have pleasure in that, like a little moment of drinking a little glass of champagne with your friends and going, oh, I finished the book. That's lovely. But so weirdly, as, as a society, as an individual, when you start to embrace the struggle that you're talking about, you also weirdly start to improve your life. Like good things will come along and happen, but they're not the thing that you're you're focused on. Yeah. So strangely, we, we, it's great to have a, a space where you're allowed to pursue what will make you happy. But what we're talking about here is the freedom from the pursuit of happiness. We're f- free to struggle and enjoy and not have to get. And weirdly, as I say, once you really embrace that, Hegel called this absolute knowledge, is when you actually realize that there's just antagonism's part of the universe and part of us and part of who we are. And we can enjoy that and move with it. But weirdly, as we absolutely accept that, we do start to achieve more. We will actually start to move f- forward more with our, with our careers, with our vocations. And of course, the trick is this. This is the bad trick for the people listening to this, is if you're listening to this and going, okay, so I have to embrace the struggle so that I can get to where I want yes. to be, <laughs> then you're not doing uh-uh. it. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't reached absolute knowledge mm-hmm. yet. Absolute mm-hmm. knowledge is when you genuinely lose your life and then find it. But you can only find it when you genuinely enter into the loss of it. People so, talk about it in love, right? Like I, I didn't find my true love until like I just sort of gave up on love yes. altogether. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, people say my my husband came along when I least expected it. And it usually at that point where that person truly says, yeah. I just don't give a fuck anymore. Yes, I'm just yes. gonna live yeah. my life for myself and try instead of trying to find a husband. Yeah. Walking into the dark comes along. Yeah. But and you the, can't the first fake the, it. Yeah. Yeah. But the first thing that someone thinks whenever they hear that is, is okay, I'm gonna give this up. This is what I need to do in order to I need to give up. Now I need to give up. And it's, yes. that's the frustrating thing about this journey is there's no shortcuts because that that's that's our first place to go is okay, I'm gonna give up so as I can get the partner. But it's gonna like, no, you have to really give up. You have to really pursue release, yes. not the yeah. not but that thing. And then when you do, you may not find the partner, but you won't you genuinely won't care because you'll find something else. Yeah. Yes. But I think it's just exciting to know that like here we all are together, all of you listening, and None of us have it figured out. <laughs> well, I, I do, and you can DM you can me yes. about DM that. You when you have yes. all the questions. But we're just, For a high yeah. enough Patreon level, you can get the answer. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> but just the idea of here we are in this holiday season and the focus being like enjoy to the world and in, embrace the lack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Oh, that was loads of fun. This yeah. is like... Yeah. Loved it. I feel like for everyone listening, like when you step into your different family situations or friend situations or whether you're alone or whatever, just it's exciting to know that now we're going to be getting into 2020 here soon and to maybe kind of 
walk into it with the idea of what you were talking about today, Pete. And you get let's makes try things a little out. lighter, right? And yeah. a little more humorous, a little more yeah. peaceful. And just being like, yeah, my family fucking sucks, and I hate <laughs> being Christmas <laughs> with them. I'm well, counting down the hours till we're done, but I'm gonna enjoy the lack that my family is. Here uh-huh. we go. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the funny thing is that we started off saying about I said like, oh, my work's a bit dark, but actually we ended up going like, yeah, the darkness is where the joy is. So mm-hmm. there you go. Light. Yeah, that was what they call that a callback in, in comedy. You could just you can pretend yep. that this was all on purpose. We had, all- this, we had this. <laughs> story arc we did it so where can our listeners find you and your work oh yeah so um you know there's loads of free stuff online i have a podcast called the fundamentalists which i do with a comedian friend elliot morgan um i do there's lots of talks online and then i do lots of courses on my patreon as well so if you just type in my name you will find seek and you shall find (laughs) we'll put all we'll make it easy to find broads by putting all that info in the episode notes well (laughs) thank you so much to you Pete, oh, thank, thank, you. You. thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and happy holidays. Happy to holidays. You all. Happy holidays. Chat soon. Bye, broads. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>